Welcome to The Long Run. This is a podcast for biotech adventurers. I'm your host, Luke Timmerman. Today, there are two guests, Zach Weinberg and Alexis Borisi. They are co-founders of Curie Bio. Curie is a venture capital fund with $520 million, mostly for seed investments and Series A rounds in biotech startups. It also is building up in-house R&D expertise, which it uses to help the companies it backs. Curie pitches itself as different from other venture firms, in part because it allows the CEO founders it backs to hold on to a greater percentage of ownership than traditional VCs have been willing to hand over. Curie also says it wants to allow entrepreneurs to retain more control over decision-making. This boils down to a battle cry of free the founders. Now, these two are definitely tapping into a popular zeitgeist of the moment. Too many biotech entrepreneurs feel they sweat bullets for years, shouldering too much of the hard work and risk without reaping enough of the reward. It's still early days for Curie Bio, but this is definitely a conversation worth having about the terms of engagement in biotech startups. Now, before we get started, a word from the sponsor of the long run, Elego Health Research. You want your biopharmaceutical or device to go to market as fast as possible because you know it can improve lives. But statistically speaking, low patient enrollment is going to stop your trial in its tracks. Elego Health Research is the ultimate patient provider, giving you immediate access to known diverse patients from more than 115 hospitals and major health systems, 200 healthcare-based sites, and 100 research-based sites. No endless searching, no waiting. Visit elgohealthresearch.com to get started. And one of the most respected independent investor events is returning to San Francisco. In person for the first time since 2019, the Bioinvestor Forum will be held on October 17th and 18th at the Hilton San Francisco Union Square. The conference showcases drug development programs that are ready for partnering or venture funding. Enjoy limitless networking, on-point sessions crafted by impressive industry experts, polished company presentations, and making important connections powered by bio one-on-one partnering. Register now at bio.org BIF. Now please join me and Zach Weinberg and Alexis Borisi on the long run. Zach Weinberg and Alexis Borisi, welcome to the long run. Luke, a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having us. Okay. You guys have started this thing called Curie Bio, a venture firm with this motto, free the founders, which uh, sounds like a battle cry, a little bit provocative. Uh, We're going to get to that in a bit, what that's all about. Um, It's really, really interesting. But um, just to get uh, our listeners familiarized with uh, what it is you're doing, I want to start with a little bit about uh, who you guys are. So, Zach... Maybe can you just uh, give me the abridged version of your entrepreneurial journey? You started as a tech entrepreneur, right? I did. Back in 2007, uh, actually, as I was leaving college, I started a software company uh, unrelated to healthcare, actually, called Invite Media. So it was a kind of classic enterprise software company in the online advertising space. Uh, We started it in 2007, and then we sold it to Google in 2010, uh, so about three years later. 
Uh, and then I went to to Google for two years. So I was at uh, Google New York, which is where I got to know Krishna Yeshwan over at Google Ventures and, and the team there. Uh, and while at Google, this is about 13, 14 years ago, uh, made the decision that I really wanted to switch industries. I, I didn't love online ads. Uh, and I wanted to be in healthcare. It was something I'd always been excited about, but you know, obviously I didn't have like the formal training. And I did what I had learned to do, which is to go spend a, a lot of time in the market, just talking to smart people and, and seeing if I could find an idea. Uh, and I spent about 18 months with my co-founder at the time doing that. Uh, and that's the company that became Flatiron Health, uh, which we started in 2012, actually with the backing of Google Ventures. Uh, and interestingly enough, and Alexis will tell the other side of this, that's actually where Alexis and I first first met uh, back when he had been the founding CEO and then chairman of Foundation Medicine. Uh, Flatiron and Foundation had done some partnering work together. So we actually met about 10 years ago. Uh, and then I left, uh, sorry, I continued on uh, at Flatiron, uh, which we ended up selling to Roche, uh, Roche Genentech in 2018. Uh, now, for, for those not familiar, Zach, uh, Flatiron Health was uh, electronic health records for oncology practices specifically. Uh, so this is um, sort of like biotech adjacent. Um, it's health IT, I guess you'd say. What, what um, just real briefly, what problem were you solving there? And um, yeah, I mean, we, what? Yeah, go ahead. We really, we really had two businesses. So on on one side, we worked with cancer centers across the country uh, as an electronic health record system, as well as some kind of core analytics to help them run their their practice or hospital better. So we had a, a large provider business, which it, you're right, is like a core health IT business at its core. And then on the other side of it, which was where I spent most of my time in in therapeutics world, was a real world evidence business. So how do you turn the clinical data that was stored in the electronic health record. So think physician notes, radiology reports, path reports, anything that had to do with the kind of description of the patient, the treatments they received and the outcomes. Uh, we had a business to sell data and insights into therapies that were on market uh, in the real world. So we had a pharmaceutical business on the other side. And so I've been in therapeutics for a very long time, but my exposure was really more what I would think of as like late stage clinical development and then commercial assets. Most of the work we did with pharma were essentially new therapies going into you know phase three studies, and then obviously tremendous amount of work with those that were approved and on market already. Okay. So you got a lot of experience there as a tech entrepreneur, learning the ropes of health IT, and then some of the issues that large pharma companies uh, were trying to solve. Um, now, Alexis, uh, you come from a more, I guess you call it biotech traditional background. Um, how, how would you uh, uh, describe um, your your entry in this industry? Yeah, you know, uh, Luke, I describe myself as a, a serial biotech entrepreneur and accidental uh, investor. I started out in chemistry and chemical biology. Uh, I was working on my PhD uh, at Harvard with Stuart Schreiber, um, which I ultimately dropped out of. So I'm a PhD dropout. And Stuart had been involved, as, as has been uh, chronicled uh, in some publications, involved in uh, the early days of Vertex Pharmaceuticals. And when I was in the lab, uh, he was involved with the starting up of Ariad Pharmaceuticals. And back then, things were a little bit more fluid and 
I'd start an experiment in Harvard and I'd carry over some of the results over to Ariad. I'd pick up some things in Ariad and bring it back over to Harvard. And that opened up my eyes to this thing called biotech. And I just got really excited uh, about it. I started cross-enrolling in some classes at Harvard Business School because you you could do that. Um, and I just got fascinated by this world that I hadn't seen. I was coming from a very academic background. And so it was, my eyes were opened uh, to this new world. I dropped out of my PhD program, took the master's and ran uh, to go get a real world practicum, if you will. Not knowing anything about business and being in Boston, that meant I joined a strategy consulting firm. I thought maybe I was leaving biotech, pharmaceuticals, life sciences altogether. But this one firm had a rainmaking partner who was good friends with the CEOs of three of the 10 largest pharmaceutical companies at the time. And I spent a couple years having that practicum, basically working for the offices of these CEOs on key issues they were facing from new technology, discovery programs, new product launches, clinical uh, strategies, sort of across a field force incentivization, everything from discovery, development, commercialization in the pharmaceutical industry. And once, and keep in mind, Luke, right, I'm in my 20s at this point, so there's a little bit of hubris of youth, but once I felt that I thought my learning curve was beginning to level off a little bit, I said, I'm gonna go out and I'm gonna start my own biotech company, uh, not really appreciating at that time that that wasn't something you were supposed to do. Maybe people do that in tech, all the time, but that definitely wasn't what they did uh, in biotech. And we'll come back to that, you know, as we talk about Curie. Um, and I just went went and did it, and that was Combinatorics uh, with uh, several other wonderful uh, co-founders. And we took that company public and put a bunch of programs into the clinic and made a lot of mistakes and learned a lot uh, and tried to make a difference for patients. After having led that for about seven years, I founded uh, a little F founding my second biotech company, which was Forma Therapeutics, which was able to do with my former thesis advisor, Stuart Schreiber and Todd Gullub from the Broad Institute uh, and Mike Foley. I was still running Combinatorics and I thought, oh, this is an enormous amount of fun starting up another company again. And so I really got that appetite. And so I left Combinatorics and uh, there was the next idea was already uh, brewing at that point, which became Foundation Medicine. Um, and again, with a spectacular group of co-founders, including uh, Eric Lander and Todd Golub and Levi Garrett. And for those not familiar, Foundation Medicine was, uh, was trying to do what exactly? Well, it seems like something that is standard practice today, which was if you have a cancer, particularly late stage cancer, uh, cancer is a disease of the genome. So sequence the genome and know why that cancer is a cancer. And are there clear therapeutic uh, drugs to be given, given the genomic information? When we started Foundation Medicine, the Broad Institute and uh, WashU in St. Louis had each just sequenced the first cancer patient. And Luke, I remember Todd Golub invited me to dinner. It was September 2008. And he said, I want to tell you that we just sequenced the genome of, you know, the first couple of cancer patients. And I'm going to paint a vision of what we think the future of cancer care is going to look like. And this is something that needs to become 
available just in day in, day out clinical practice, and it needs to be done right. And we're worried that there's lots of ways that it might be done that are not done right. And we want to build a company that will establish that standard of care. Now, at and, that time, there there already were some drugs on the market that were designed to go after specific mutations in cancer patients like HER2 or EGFR. Um, and maybe they had a one-off diagnostic where a doctor could you know, find out if uh, you had one of those mutations and whether you were a good candidate for the drug. But there was nothing, there was no widespread ability to just assess uh, a given cancer patient's tumor for a whole bunch of different potential mutations and then give them that information to figure out, okay, well, what might be the best way to treat this person? Exactly right. Comprehensive genomic profiling. Read all the information that you uh, that would be possible in one go. Okay. So you were generating all this information at Foundation Medicine about cancer mutations. And in this parallel world, Zach over here is uh, working on Flatiron to uh, help oncology practices better manage uh, all the information that they have, not just cancer genomics, but other types of information too. And and this is where you guys converged. This, this is where you actually met and found some shared interest and, and maybe some compatibility that, that lasted. Well, I think we, we, we liked each other, uh, sort of, uh, enjoyed the, the engagement of minds. Um, we formed a strategic collaboration between foundation and Flatiron, as Zach said, uh, Actually, we we at, from Foundation's perspective, we tried to buy Flatiron. Uh, that wasn't successful, uh, huh. but but that's how highly we thought of what uh, you know Zach and Nat were doing. I'll put one other just sort of uh, uh, anecdote in here, Luke, which is um, so Foundation Medicine had been my third company. In parallel, I also uh got blueprint medicines going which was sort of the the sister company focused on the therapeutics for foundation uh medicine but what something that foundation medicine and blueprint shared is they both had third rock as their founding investor and in the process of building foundation and blueprint uh third rock was raising their second venture fund and said hey this is a lot of fun we just had building these two companies why don't you join us as a partner uh, which i did um, in this as well, and keep in mind here, I was a brand new partner, totally wet behind the ears. That's when I first met Zach. Uh, and, you know, uh, Christian had said, hey, why don't you invest a million dollars into Flatiron Health? And I remember, again, being Im Im impressed uh, by what they were building. And I went back uh, to my partners and I was like, oh, we should do this. And they're like, what do you know about this space? You know nothing about this space. This is crazy. Uh, and acknowledgingly, like, I, I didn't know anything uh, about the space. And uh, But it's a one investment I always regret not having made. Uh, and it's also around the time when I, you know, as I said, became an accidental uh, venture capital investor. So I figured with Zach, you know, over time, we were able to end up forming a strategic partnership between Foundation Medicine and Flatiron. And ironically, both companies ended up being bought, bought by Roche, but I completely failed uh, as an investor to invest in Flatiron Health, and I failed from the foundation medicine side to acquire Flatiron Health.
Okay, well, you found other things to do that uh, that were worthwhile, I guess. And while you're at Third Rock Ventures, you, you got to um, got to know a lot of people and got exposed to a lot of cool technologies here in the in the 2010s. Um, now, just in terms of the timeline, both of you guys, uh, well, Zach sold um, with your partner Flatiron Health to Roche for about two billion dollars. I believe that was in 2018. Um, when when was the foundation medicine transaction? Was that before or after or pretty close? It was a two-part transaction. The first part was 2015. That's where they bought a controlling interest. And then in 2018, they bought the rest of the company. Okay. So both of these um, really interesting um, platforms for over improving the treatment of cancer, ultimately, uh, they get absorbed into Roche. And now, Zach, as an entrepreneur, you're then... I guess, a free agent to do pretty much whatever you want. Um, what was it that you were thinking that you wanted to do next? Yeah, I mean, I did I did the uh, the classic post-acquisition soul-searching, which is I pretended to go on vacation. Uh, and that lasted about about two months before I, I got anxious of, you know, wanting to dig back in. And, I, I you know, I'd always had this interest in going er earlier into discovery. I, I remember... Probably my biggest frustration about Flatiron Health was by the time we got engaged in kind of helping to optimize the treatment like the treatment patterns and kind of the evidence generation for a new therapeutic, the actual drug itself was locked by the time it got to us, right? You know, someone basically say, hands you this box and says, do everything you possibly can to make this better, except you can't change the box. And that's that's really what it that's what it was for us. And so, you know, discovery always felt like the global maximum. You know, a lot of what we were doing was great at Flatiron, but but it felt mu very much like a local maximum. And I didn't know any better besides, well, if this is something I'm interested in, let's just go spend a bunch of time with early stage therapeutics founders, basically looking for you know Alexis 15, 20 years ago, and that's what I did uh, after leaving Roche in in 2021. I spent, uh, you know, a year or so just talking to early stage founders of new therapeutics companies and and really trying to understand the challenges they were facing on a day-to-day -day basis. I, I didn't have one specific idea in mind. It was a little bit more of a fact-finding mission. And what I walked away with, and we can dig into kind of the why and, and, and all the details here, was really this like one aha moment for me, um, which was that being a therapeutics founder was way harder than being a software founder. And I had been a software founder my whole life and I thought I knew what I was doing and I get into therapeutics and I look at the complexity of the work that these uh, scientists have to do and I'm going, oh my God, this is way more complicated than anything I've ever had to accomplish for, for a variety of reasons. Um, but the biggest one probably being the cost of a mistake. You know, one of the beauties of, of starting a software company is that if you make a mistake, it's pretty quick and easy to fix it, right? We, we wrote books about this in the industry, the lean startup, you know, throw out an early version of the product, gather customer feedback, and then tweak, tweak, tweak along the way because the tweaks themselves are computer code, right? It's the, the cost is very minimal and the time is, is reasonably fast. And so that model works. You don't have to get everything right up front. If you uh, put you out can, a product that has bugs in it, um, it's not that big a deal. The customers will forgive you. The consequences just aren't that high. You can always improve it. Yeah, and it, almost to the extreme where you kind of have to put the product out with some bugs in it because if you don't, you don't get the feedback. 
And so you don't even know you're wrong until you've put it in the hands of somebody to actually use the product. And so you move, you know, this is the old school Facebook, like move fast and break things. And th there's a reason for it in software. Uh, that does not work in therapeutics, right? It's not just uh, that you have to have PhD level education. You have to have these multidisciplinary teams and work on complex, both biology and chemistry and kind of other areas. But you also basically can't make a mistake in the beginning. And that mistake could be in everything from the target selection to the experiment design to finding the right vendors, contracting with that vendor, interpretation of the data. There's so many things you have to get right all at the same time. And if you screw any of them up in any material way, those are not bug in the code mistakes, right? The die is cast. Those, those are high consequence decisions you make early and you can't just uh, iterate, iterate, iterate on them. Because if you try to do that, I mean, that means you go back to square one. In many cases, you start over and you're going to spend a lot more time and money. <laughs> Your investors are probably not going to be happy. Yeah, exa exactly. I mean, the, the mistakes can be six month, 12 month. They could be longer mistakes, you know, until you even realize you made one. Uh, and then, yeah, you have to run it all the way back to the beginning in many cases, which could mean you're out hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars, plus the time and the overhead associated with it. And then you have this giant catch-22 which is at the moment in time in which the mistakes are the most expensive, which is right in the beginning, because you have the least amount of money and, and the least amount of uh, flexibility, they're also the hardest to avoid because you're new and you're small. And in a sense, nobody pays attention to you, right? Like the way you go about attacking problems like these generally is you get the best, smartest people around the table, both people and vendors, advisors, and that is just incredibly difficult to do when you're just getting started, right? Because, and I, I've described this to, to even to our investors is it's a very different world when you're sending, you know, Luke Timmerman an email as Zach Weinberg at Gmail versus when I'm sending you an email as Zach Weinberg at Roche.com. Uh, you know, imagine the difference in response rate. And, and that is what a founder faces in almost every aspect of their business every single day. I, I, I was watching this happen you know, people seeking advice, seeking help, seeking proper vendors and, and advisors, and just struggling to get in front of the best people. Uh, and and that to me was kind of this rate limiting factor of entrepreneurship, right? Which is the idea, if you will, of freeing the founders is how do you give founders the the access to both people and vendors and, and insights that they would have in a much larger organization how do you give it to them kind of right in the beginning? How do you give them the, the credibility, the names, the email intros, but also the hands-on help, all the things that, you know, as a founder, you you would want, but done in, in a single place. And that that became the kind of original thesis for, for Curie Bio, but it, it stemmed from basically watching founders struggle. That, that was this, kind of the, the genesis. This sounds like a way to lower the barrier to entry, so to speak for new entrepreneurs to get in the game and really pressure test their, their ideas. Uh, but there's more going on here too. Um, now, Alexis, when you probably look over at guys like Zach, tech entrepreneurs, we've seen success stories like this, especially with guys when they're young and think, man, they're just playing by a whole different set of rules, it's just different rules to that game. Um, did, did you, did you think that what, what made you think, I guess that, Maybe biotech entrepreneurship could borrow some of the the principles 
at work in tech entrepreneurship and, and make it easier for people to start things, fail fast, fail cheap, try again. Well, look, as you know, and as we've had conversations over the years, I've seen how things have uh, developed in in biotech startups and investing over the past couple of decades. And interesting couple of sort of trends in, in you know, different directions. One, you know, go back into the 2000s and, you know, my first round of combinatorics was a $15 million Series A, uh, and that was considered a, a good size round then. You know, and then uh, a couple of years ago, if you weren't doing a $100 million Series A, it wasn't anything of interest. So capital deployment round sizes had grown, a lot of that driven by the increasing size of funds uh, in, the, in, in our sector. A second thing is technology was changing. And technology, particularly in serious therapeutics, is not a panacea, right? Uh, there is so, much, so many details uh, that need to be paid attention to. It's not just a question of, oh, have this computer program uh, just make a drug for you. However, there are lots of things that technology enables that was science fiction five years ago, 10 years ago. And so the possibility that you can achieve greater efficiency is not just a possibility, but is a reality. And, <laughs> you know, what happened is uh, Krishna Yeshwan, who you heard uh, Zach mention uh, earlier, uh, a partner at GV uh, Ventures, and uh, GV had been a backer of both Flatiron Health and Foundation Medicine, and Krishna is a, is a good friend. Uh, Krishna and I often like to go for for walks in the woods in, in Belmont, Massachusetts, near where where both of us live. And Krishna said to me, "Hey, Alexis, have you have you caught up with Zach uh, recently?" And this is, of course, in the middle of of COVID. I said, "Krishna, it's the middle of COVID. I haven't talked to Zach since before the 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 pandemic began." And Krishna said, "You really should catch up with him because he's got something that he's thinking about. That knowing the way that you've been thinking and things that we've been talking about." You're going to be interested in hearing how he's thinking. A little later that afternoon, totally uh, disconnected, I got a phone call. Actually, it was uh, Mike Polini going back in sort of the foundation medicine uh, and flat iron connections. And he said, have you heard what Zach is up to? Is this crazy? Is this possible? Is this insane? So now, Luke, of course, I'm naturally very intrigued. I'm like, okay. Got to catch up with Zach. And we started talking. And then Zach immediately popped up uh, to Boston from New York. And we started spending a bunch of time together brainstorming and realized, you know, and you heard a little bit in this, in this podcast as we've begun, the world was very different for tech entrepreneurs than it has been for uh, biotech founders. And if you will, right, the the saying, right, like uh, tech entrepreneurs, you know, two guys and a dog in a garage start the next great uh, artificial intelligence or enterprise software or e-commerce company. And the problem is that you haven't been able to start a serious therapeutics uh, company in your garage. But now maybe you can, if you have the right creative idea, but if you can have access to the right type of material support of real expertise, because you need that real expertise from some of the best drug hunters and drug makers in the business, 
can it be, yeah, no, not literally in your garage, but in your metaphorical garage, can founders start a serious therapeutics company and in a much more efficient manner, really go make a difference? Now, I want to try out an analogy here. I, I think what you're getting at here is that technology was improving very quickly, but it also requires the people who uh, know how to use it and put the pieces together. Now, if, if I think about what was enabling this uh, wave of tech entrepreneurship back when Zach was getting things started, one of the key um, drivers was the development of cloud computing uh, and AWS so that you know a new uh, company didn't need to spend a whole lot of money, time and money getting their own servers and managing all of this stuff. They could... Um, save money, move quickly. The entrepreneurship itself was getting leaner, faster, cheaper. Now, in, in biotech, in parallel, now this wasn't happening at exactly the same time. It was coming along a little later, but certainly you saw this at Foundation Medicine when you started this thing uh, 15 years ago. DNA sequencing was a lot more expensive than it is today. <laughs> that price has come down. It's become democratized. And there's all these other technologies too, like single cell analysis, proteomics, spatial biology, cryo-EM, I mean, imaging of tissues, all I could go on and on, right? The, the modern lab has a lot of these technologies that have really gotten better and in some cases more accessible, cheaper. And it's aided by that underlying uh, technological development, such as cloud computing, um, before we even get into the analysis and software and all that. So. You saw these technologies improving. You also happen to have a pretty good network of people who are experts in these fields and um, certain therapeutic areas that can put them to good use. And you thought, maybe we, we, we can put together the tools and the people uh, that, that provide the support. We can kind of raise the, raise the platform. Maybe that's not the right word, but make it uh, easier for biotech entrepreneurs to start things. Yeah, I mean, that's that's it in a nutshell. You know, I watched firsthand this shift from in order to start a software company, you needed to build a data center, you needed to have the hardware in terms of the actual servers and disk space, you needed the people to manage that hardware. And so, you know, starting a software company 25 years ago was more expensive, more complicated, more time-consuming. And then it all changes, right? It changes exactly as you said, Luke, in, in like around the early 2000s with Amazon Web Services first and then, you know, a variety of, of others coming later. And in a sense, it, it became easier, at least operationally, to be a software founder. And it definitely became cheaper. Uh, you, you could have a much leaner team. You could pay for things on a variable basis as opposed to a fixed basis, which allows you to spend less money in the beginning. So on and so forth. And, and what happens in software entrepreneurship is the number of software companies explodes, right? We go from a few hundred software companies started every year to thousands. And then now, you know, north of probably 20,000 new software companies that get started and funded every year because it just got easier and cheaper. Uh, and you could do more with less. This idea of like capital efficiency plays out and, and it doesn't stop, right? It's still going 20, 20 some odd years later. And you know, we when Alexis and I were talking about this, it felt like we were beginning to see this happen in biotech, in therapeutics specifically. 
whether it was the growth of specific individual technologies or just the market for preclinical CROs across the globe, right? You had small rinky-dink companies that were no longer small rinky-dink companies, but large multi-billion dollar public entities that had customers that weren't just small companies, but big pharma companies were using these preclinical CROs. So you had what looked like the beginning of a shift, and and, and this is what we think is coming over the next 10 years, and, and we'll just continue to grow. With this one giant uh, butt tied to the whole thing, and I think this is the part we got really excited about, which is it's pretty easy in software to use cloud computing. Like if you have a technical bent and, and a computer science degree, it's not that complicated. These are just like sign up with your credit card and there's an API. And that is not how it works in therapeutics. Uh, I would say this this shift to cost-effective uh, early experimentation is necessary, but not sufficient. Uh, and this model that we developed here at Curie was saying, look, writing a check and now you can write a more efficient, smaller check. So think, you know, $10 million instead of 30 is possible, but you need the help alongside it. It's not enough to just be a check writer in this industry. You have to be a service provider as well. You have to be a hands-on advisor and helper to these founders and companies. And, and that's essentially what we ended up creating here with, with Curie Bio is we started both a fund in the sense that, yes, we are a early-stage venture fund that will write 5 to $10 million checks into early-stage therapeutics companies. We, we enjoy and, and love being the first dollars in if we can, but we can also be the second. Um, but we also started a what I think of as like extremely hands-on, high-end drug discovery services company, uh, where we are in the trenches with the founders and founding team, helping them not just raise the money, uh, but actually to do the work. And, and that's everything from the target strategy to the experiment design, to all the vendor contracting, to data interpretation, to staffing, back office. Uh, if you want us to help you build your website, not suggesting that's valuable, but we will do it. Uh, the point is to enable small founders and small companies to feel like bigger companies, to give them the access to the people they 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 wouldn't have on their own. So Curie Bio is both a venture investor and co-operator. I guess you could say, with the entrepreneur. Yeah. yeah, and I do want to be clear. These are still the founders' companies, right? These are not our companies. We don't sit around and come up with ideas and start businesses ourselves. We exclusively work with external ideas and external founders, but we embed ourselves alongside the founders day-to-day -to, -day to help them. We, we described it as a, as a co-pilot. We, we spent a long time trying to find the right word, and I'm not sure we really have it yet, but co-pilot was the, the best we could do. Are you struggling with patient recruitment? Elego Health Research has the solution you'll wish you tried sooner. When you partner with Elego, you get immediate access to known diverse patients from more than 115 hospitals and major health systems, 200 healthcare-based sites, and 100 research-based sites. So your trial easily gets the patients it needs faster and has more than 30% minority representation. Stop waiting, start enrolling. Visit elegohealthresearch.com to get started. And the Bioinvestor Forum, or BIF for short, will cover the challenges you face, like understanding the impacts of the Inflation Reduction Act, prioritizing funding options, understanding the intersection of AI and biotech, and exciting treatment advances. Past attendees have said that their company's participation in BIF resulted in relationships that led to meaningful licensing deals. Join us October 17th and 18th in San Francisco. 
explore the program and register at bio.org BIF. Okay, so now some people listening to this might think, gosh, this sounds a lot like uh, venture creation or what Third Rock Ventures, where Alexis used to work. That's kind of what they do. They, they incubate these companies for quite a while before they emerge um, with a sizable Third Rock investment. And they're not the only venture firm that does this. Of course, there's lots of others that um, take a, what they would call a pretty hands-on um, role, Atlas, Flagship, Arch, you know, there are others. Um What's different here? I'll let Alexis comment on on the third rock part of it because I I um obviously in his experience there, I would say two things, you know, I'll highlight and, and then hand it to Alexis. One, um, we are accelerator, not incubator, in the sense that we don't sit around incubating our own ideas. Like we bring out the this team and access to entrepreneurs and founders across the world, uh, which I think is really important because if as as a founder, you know, I would always hesitate to pitch a firm that also starts companies, right? In in a way of like, you know, am I competing with my customer? And that would always concern me. Um, and I think the the model for us is very much like this is your business, you are running it, you're in charge from an ownership percentage, the 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 founders own more. And so there's just a different economic model and a different control model for for founders here. Um and then two, which which Alexis can get into in, in much better detail than I can, we're in we're in the weeds in a way that I think most other groups are are, are not day to day hands on scientific work in, in in particular. Okay, Alexis, what would you say is different here between what Curie's doing and the uh, venture creation model at some of those uh, other firms I mentioned? Yeah, and I think uh, you know Zach said it well. First of all, you know there's a bunch of really great firms, Luke, as you said, and you know Third Rock and Atlas and Flagship and Versant, amongst others, and you know they do great things. I think uh, a point of emphasis, and Zach mentioned it, but I'll just underscore it: it's the founders' companies. It's not Curie's company; it's their company. The founders they still control the company. Uh, you know, they own the majority of the company. Um, we co-pilot, we're there to help, uh, but they're making their strategic decisions uh, and we don't have a veto uh, on that uh, as it goes. The second thing is, you know, we really, <laughs> we are really uh, there to be helpful in the weeds or as Christoph Langauer, uh, who leads a lot of these efforts uh, for us uh, at Curie and is another uh, uh, partner uh, of Zach and mine, um, we do real work. The people that make up the bulk of the team and the CSO partner organization at Curie, these are not investors. These are people that you would see uh, inside pharma or biotech companies that have led programs with 15 to 20 years of experience. And it's at that level of detail, uh, engagement and providing that support to the founders. Because if you step back from it for a moment, Luke, like what we're looking for in founders are people that have that creative idea, that new insight of an opportunity. Why is it that we expect that those people will necessarily have all the experience to know all the ins and outs from going from that creative idea to the industrial grade drug embodiment of that? And that's what the drug makers and drug hunters at Curie are there to 
help the founders be able to come up with that detailed experimental plan that will do it in the most efficient and effective manner and help them execute that in the most leveraged and again, most efficient manner. Now, there's a um, social and cultural aspect to this thing, too, um, where, you know, I've covered a lot of companies over the years as they go public. And if you look at their capitalization tables and you often see the CEO founder who, um, you know, poured his, his or her heart and soul into this thing for many years, comes out with, you know, a very small single digit percentage ownership, maybe two or three <laughs> percent. And uh, if you look at tech companies, it's doesn't work that way at all. Uh, they have a much bigger slice of the pie. And it sure seems like there's some consternation out there in the biotech entrepreneurial community about founders maybe getting uh, a little less than they deserve uh, or getting the short end of the stick in the negotiations with the VC firms to be a bit blunt about it. Um, do you Do you think that's uh, a real thing out there, and that's something that you are able to tap into uh, and in the entrepreneurial community? Well, I think it's an objective statement that you can say that in the tech world, it is not uncommon at all to have founders that have 10, 20, 30% ownership, not after their A round, but in a fully mature company. And you have obviously examples of some where they still maintain an outright control uh, of the company, even when it's fully mature. There are very few examples of that in biotech historically. We would hope in the free the founders mantra that what we're doing at Curie will both result in some amazing therapeutics that will make a big difference for patients, but we also hope that finding founders that have those 10, 20, 30% ownerships when their company is fully mature becomes something much more common in biotech. So you're um, you're an investor and you still, I mean, you're putting real work into uh, these companies too, from the sounds of it. Uh, what kind of ownership stake is Curie seeking to have? Yeah, I mean, it it varies on the idea and it varies based on the amount of money the company needs. But I would say typically early stage, we are writing somewhere between five and $10 million checks into these businesses. Uh, part of what we're doing, frankly, is is mapping out what are the right set of critical path experiments these companies should be doing so they don't make those mistakes, right? You have to remember, and this is something we talk to founders about all the time, dilution does not just happen at the seed, right? It happens at the A, it happens at the B, it happens at the C. And if you don't get the right strategy and execution done early, you may save a few points of dilution now, but you will pay for it later. Uh, and so there's a balance of you know maximizing ownership at any point in time as a founder with long-term ownership, which is you know something we always try and and convey, right? You know, as, as Curie, I would say we have a good, fair deal that allows the founders to retain control uh, of their own businesses. But you may find cheaper money out there. To be clear, I mean, there's always somebody potentially willing to give you cheaper money without the help. Uh, and so we try and find a balance between the two. Uh, Roughly five to ten million dollar checks. I would say typically our seed fund owns 33-ish, 35-40% or so. Uh, and then we bring the services for sweat equity. So we're typically taking seven and a half percent sweat equity uh, from these companies in founder common, which I think is actually really important. We put ourselves and our services at risk. We don't charge cash for them. Uh, and we take the what I think of as like the lowest of the capital stack, meaning if this company is not successful, neither are we. 
Uh, maybe more importantly than than equity, I think equity is like one consideration a founder should care about. The, the other is just control and 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 upside and agency. Uh, and so these are not businesses we control. We we very explicitly are not in charge uh, of of the company. We don't have like a controlling board set up. Um, and so even as the as these companies mature, you know, one of the things I I found in software was really compelling is you know you'd have founders who were no longer majority owners, obviously, but they cared deeply, right? They cared deeply about that company because they owned uh, enough and. They were in charge of thinking through succession planning, whether it was time to bring in a CEO in the future or a COO. Uh, but these were folks who were involved and are involved in their businesses all the way through. And, and that's really what we anticipate will happen here. You know, I, I think you'll have a, a wide variety of companies where some the founder stays all the way all the way through as the CEO. Some they hand it off to an experienced developer early. Some they hand it off to a commercial leader later. And, and, and some, as I said, make it from from one end to the other. I think all of the above. But most importantly, it's it's really theirs, right? It's their decision to make at the end of the day. Uh, and that paired with deep, deep help to avoid the mistakes and by avoiding mistakes, avoiding future heavily dilutive rounds uh, ultimately should mean net new biotechs, net new science, net new founders. Uh, and that's that's what we're aiming for. How big is your actual um, support company, if you will? We will be roughly 70 people um, within the next 12 months or so. So we're about 38 or so today uh, and growing pretty quickly. Uh, so it's about 70 at peak. Um, and then we have obviously a larger network of non-full-time. Those are full-time employees, by the way. Those are not advisors or venture partners. Those are FTEs. This is their only job. They're full-time uh, employees and they're domain experts in one aspect or another that's critical to making these early decisions. And um, they they will kind of move from one project to the next or one portfolio company to the next to, um, I guess, keep things interesting for them. Yeah, exactly. And actually, in, in a way, that's one way to solve the talent challenge for a small company, which is, you know, it's nearly impossible for a new small startup to get access to the best people because, A, they're not going to join you full time. They have a massive opportunity cost of, of their own time. And B, you may not need them full time. And so having an opportunity to hire them centrally, but in a sense, staff out fractionally is, is one of the key ways in which this, this works, right? We can take an excellent chemist or biologist who works on our team and they can work across five or six companies at any one time. Because, you know, the work is, is not always evenly spread. It depends on where you are in, in your experiment plan. And so, yeah, that, that 70 is full time. And then we have a larger network of what I would describe as expert advisors, SAB members, obviously vendors, uh, all across the board. So it's meant to be a one-stop shop for access. Uh, so that's the that's the Curie shop, um, those people and what they do. Uh, are you thinking that when you make a portfolio investment, whether you call it at a C or an A round, that at some point, I mean, it's I guess it's the lonely entrepreneur or a couple of people in the beginning um, with that concept. And then they, I mean, they gradually build their own team of their own FTEs and they sort of graduate or leave the nest. Yeah, that's exactly right. Um, you know, as a company matures, they they have real data. Uh, I'm sure Alexis can probably talk to you about the challenges of recruiting before you have real experimental data and, and results. And one of the benefits of this model is you generate real data, 
you get to the next round and then you get access and an ability to hire better people. And, and that, that's exactly right. They'll, they'll kind of graduate incrementally over time. And one of the things here, which leads to a lot of efficiency, like a lot of the seeds we write, I mean, you're talking about that there's one, two or three FTEs in the company full-time. Now that could be lonely, Luke, as you were saying, but of course they've got their co-pilot team. And so there might be four, five, six people on the team from Curie.bio while they're in the seed stage that are, you know, meeting uh, uh, regularly. Cause as I said, you know, in the, in, in the weeds doing real work uh, with the founders. Um, but you keep it, very uh, focused on variable costs until you have the data to know, you know, what you really have. And I think that's important because, and I've done this, look, I'll own up to it from my own uh, experience in building companies. There have been many companies where I've built where like, first thing you go do is you go get a lab, you go hire 15 to 20 people. Uh, you generate a lot of heat uh, and effort because now you have those full-time people, they're doing things and you're not always pursuing the most efficient path to really generating the data that you need to have. Those fixed costs you bring on become very, very expensive in your early days when you're trying to take your creative idea and make it into something uh, real. My one company, uh, it was a $40 million Series A. Uh, and, you know, in the from the first year and the second year of that company, we spent... Uh, 7 million in the first year, 16 million in the second year, $23 million. And I had generated really cold, very, very little. And in point of fact, the next things that we generate on the next set of dollars, you could get done today in an entirely externalized model to greater power, not just uh, greater efficiency, uh, and you could do that for a few million dollars. So yes, it can be the lonely entrepreneur where you say you have the girl, the guy, the dog, and the cat in the metaphorical garage being able to start a serious therapeutics company, but you're backed by the Curie co-pilots providing that expertise of uh, drug makers uh, and drug hunters uh, and that community, Luke, as you were talking about, and that shift from fixed cost to variable costs, allowing you to be really efficient on the critical path to get to the point where you really have something, that's part of what enables the founders to get that very different journey that we were just talking about. You know, I talked to a VC just another week ago who uh, said something funny about how we're patient about the markets and when they might reward us, but we're not patient about the path to getting data <laughs> that that validates uh, the, the idea or not. Um, and it sounds like, I mean, that that's sort of one way of saying uh, that they're subscribing to this leaner um, startup model. Yeah, when you have those overhead costs, they can really kill you. Uh, you know, another VC said to us, you know, the, the model has been during these sort of like halcyon years was raise an enormous A and fire off the confetti cannons. Uh, <laughs> you know, and there you go. That's how you build a biotech company. I think it is a fair point to say we are really focused on helping the founders that have a really compelling creative idea that can make a difference for patients to as efficiently and as effectively as possible show whether their idea really has merit. Okay. So these are still pretty early days for Curie, but 
You have made a few investments, I think. Uh, are there some examples you can point to from the portfolio that that might illustrate um, what what you're trying to do? Alexis, yeah. I'm gonna I'm gonna let you grab that one, as uh, I think you'll do a better job than me. Well, I don't know about that, Zach, but I'll give you a couple examples that I think give uh, you know a, a beautiful flavor of them. Uh, one is a company called Forward Therapeutics, and uh, they have a, a, a beautiful idea of which you know Luke has uh, uh, become in vogue while they've been working in their seed, which is creating oral small mo- molecules against uh, blockbuster immunoinflammatory targets, and I. Uh, we were able to help them have uh, go from their creative ideas uh, at the start of the seed and effectively on the scale of seed that Zach was talking about, be a development candidate at their most advanced program uh, in uh, lead optimization on the second and an early lead on their third, uh, all on this sort of single digit millions uh, of dollars. And it's the type of thing where there's two people in the company. Uh, you know, uh, they're an amazing uh, team. Uh, you know, coming at it from a chemistry and pharmacology perspective, and I think we were able to uh, provide them an additional depth uh, on the biological side and an extension of their capability and an interface to that external vendor world to be able to make that type of progress in a very efficient manner. Interesting. Um, well, maybe necessity is the mother of invention here. <laughs> it's really, you know, you see it, but it's it's really true. Like when you think about what is the critical path and you spend a lot of time in that area, I mean, and this is true in, in any industry, I think you end up with just better plans because you're not thinking about what are all the things I could do. You're thinking about what are the critical experiments I must do in order to convince the next set of investors. And actually, one of the things I think we really like about this model uh, is if you focus, and and we do, we focus our effort on the seed, what that really makes you think about is like, what is the data that is going to convince a Series A investor to put not $10 million into this, but 25 or 30 or 40 or 50? And that that's a it's a really nice forcing function to make both Curie and the founding teams think about what matters the most. And these are, I think, where a lot of founders make mistakes, right? They do some experiments that may give you an answer, but they don't give you the answer or the most important answers. And and you end up in a world where you've spent a bunch of money and done some wet lab work, but you really haven't answered any of the critical questions. And and those become kind of like the zombie businesses that are very, very tough and, and kind of unlikely to survive. I was just talking yesterday to a cell therapy entrepreneur who who emphasized to me that he was not building a Taj Mahal for cell therapy manufacturing. He had the construct that was in good shape uh, from the early days on a small amount of money and was forcing himself to think about the critical questions for the patient. Like, what kind of product profile does the patient really need and that ultimately will win uh, over standard of care today? and I thought, you know what, if maybe you're not getting $100 million today like you wanted, but <laughs> it seems like you're going through a pretty healthy exercise right there. Well, and Luke, and like thinking through that target product profile is is tremendously important. Uh, you know, we see a lot 
you know, and we're investing across the board, small molecules, biologics, engineered biologics, uh, gene modifying therapies, cell therapies, a common thing across all of them. And some of them are an individual product idea. Some of them a group of product ideas around a concept. Some of them platforms. Again, common through all of them is, okay, what's the best first embodiment of what you're doing? And then what's the second best drug embodiment? And in that best drug embodiment, right, if it's a platform, okay, what's the best application of it, right? What is that target product profile? What is it you're trying to make? Why is that something that's going to be amazing for patients and amazing for society? And if you force your thinking through that, that helps illustrate what are the experiments you need to do to really show that. And one of the things we try to do with founders is to help them think through not only was it what is it you need to get in the seed to show in the seed to get to the A, but then what's going to be the value proposition for the investors at the Series A to go get the Series B or the crossover? And then for those investors to go whether it's selling the company uh, or uh, taking the company public, whatever the founder wants to do uh, in this journey. But think it through all the way from what is that target product profile that you're thinking about. And Luke, that is hard to do, which is why so many entrepreneurs and venture investors don't do it. And you have to be humble because there's lots of degrees of freedoms and there's lots of things you don't know. And so another thing we're trying to say is, you're not trying to predict the future. Maybe it will look like that. Maybe it won't. But can you at least envision a path? Because if you can't envision a path, then you're going a little bit on a wing and a prayer. If you envision the path, it's unlikely that things will play out exactly on that path. But now you are framing it up and you understand what the steps can look like. What's the path look like for Curie? How do you measure your success? Long term. I, mean, I, th I think at the end of the day, you know, we're excited to bring new therapeutic companies and ultimately new new therapies themselves to market. And and I think our goal is kind of like net new entrepreneurship, if you will, uh, net new entrepreneurship. So more people starting companies who may or may not have started them before. As a result of that, more shots on goal, more successes in kind of the denominator there. Uh, and that's ultimately the, the the final goal. On the way there, you know, there's there's things we're looking for, right? We want to make sure that we are the first phone call for any therapeutics founder who is even thinking of starting a company, right? We, we'd love to be a call. You don't have to work with us. There's no commitment whatsoever, but we'd like to talk to you, right? We'd like to see if we can help. And part of what we're hoping is for general awareness, right? So to to be in in the in the psyche of founders across the globe. I think two, we're, we're looking to see, you know, what is the portfolio of the first thirty or so companies in our in our fund look like, uh, and how how exciting are these businesses? I think we've we've we have seven investments so far. We're about to make two more, so we should be, you know, roughly a dozen or so in the next month or two. Uh, and the portfolio looks really exciting. We have a bunch of what I would describe as high risk science that, if it works, is hugely rewarding on the other side, and, and that's kind of the portfolio construction we were hoping for. Uh, and and that's what it's beginning to see. And then third is obviously we'd like to see many, but it won't be all, but many of these companies go on to the A and the B and the C, right? Those are good kind of proxy measures uh, along the way. 
but it is high risk science, right? Like we are doing seed investing and and our investors know this and we've been very transparent that we expect like a reasonably high failure rate. This is not every deal we do, we expect to get to an A. I mean, our internal models expect at least 50% fail. Uh, and that's that's great because we can fail at a higher rate because we can make capital efficient progress, right? This is part of what that uh, efficiency enables you to do is you can do more investments, more shots on goal with the same amount of money. So all of those things combined, and you know, we're we're iterating through it. I, I would say our our command of exactly what we're looking at is is shifting as as we go. Zach, you said net new entrepreneurship. Um, should should we expect to see uh, an openness uh, on your part to a different sort of phenotype of uh, entrepreneur? I know you guys mentioned the uh, the experience of the people on your team. Um, and I know that there's a lot of younger entrepreneurs out there who wonder why they don't seem to get the same breaks in biotech as tech entrepreneurs do. Do, do you think there's an under tapped pool of, of young entrepreneurs out there that you, you can and want to work with? I think, yeah, I mean, go ahead, Alexis. I think we have it coming from all types, uh, Luke, you know, there's going to be, uh, uh, you know, the person straight out of grad school or postdoc, or there's going to be a person uh, like Zach described, who's just sort of hunting for an idea and uh, finds a scientist and and uh, pulls that idea out. There's going to be uh, people from industry, from mid-level of industry. There's going to be, you know, uh, grandees, uh, of course. I think uh, ultimately you hit on it a little bit there. I think there's going to be a broader array of people that can envision themselves as a founder of a biotech company. And I think we're going to see that. I think we're seeing that uh, already. One thing I would add on this uh, to it, you know, as Zach says, net new founders, net new science. One pushback we heard from some people as we got Curie going was all the ideas, you know, it's saturated. All the ideas are already getting turned into drugs. And, and Zach and I literally were like, oh man, if that's what people think, like if that's the counter argument, that is a bet we are willing to take any day because we believe very much in, uh, you know, human ingenuity and entrepreneurship. And that if you have the right structures, you can really set that creativity free. And uh, I think every time that people have said an area is all played out or at its maximum, that has been proven wrong. And we see that already. Like in multiple companies that we've already done, you know, some of them are brand new ideas. Somebody's just developed this computational approach for this gene modifying thing that nobody's thought about before. Okay, hot off the presses. Others of them are ones that everybody else I think has said no to. And you know what? We are happy to look at both of those. And if it's exciting and we see a compelling proposition, we'll do it. Well, biology is still. Oh, go ahead, Zach. No, what I just mean, one one nuance on founder and and kind of this idea of net new founders. For whatever reason, what I've realized is that when I say that, people tend to envision you know like the twenty seven year old postdoc. I, I think it has something to do with like the mythology of the college entrepreneur and software. You know the the Zuckerbergs and Jack Dorseys and you know who started companies in their twenties. And, and I just, I don't actually think that's the way we think about it. Like when I talk about net new entrepreneurs, I don't just mean, you know, the postdoc, although that's inclusive of them as well. 
I mean, the head of biology and the head of chemistry at a late stage biotech who maybe wouldn't have made the leap before because the risk reward of giving up their salary versus you know what they could get on the other side wasn't there, but now they're seriously considering it. Or the retired professor, which is actually uh, one of the companies we funded in the multiple sclerosis space, is a retired industry executive and a retired professor who've been working in MS for 20 plus years and have had a, a very specific thesis for some new biology that that we backed. So it's not about age. Uh, for whatever reason, I, I find that's what people think. Uh, it's really about this thesis that like good ideas can come from anywhere. Uh, and what we're hoping is more people pursue those ideas, whether they're, you know, retired or they're just getting started. But that, that's what I mean by by net new net new founders. Yeah, those are the invisible phenotypes. The person with ten years of experience at a big company who's really good at what they do and just hasn't had a shot to start a company, um, maybe didn't have the networks or the confidence or whatever, but has a great idea. And uh, yeah, and, you know, th- and that person can start a company at thirty eight. <laughs> That's the reality, right? Like, you know, if you're a mid, uh, mid-level mid executive at a, at a big pharmaceutical company and you're great at your job, but look, you, ha- you may still have student debt from your postdoc, you've got kids, kids are going to college, you know, there's life that kind of hits you in the face. And, and I completely understand why people don't take the risk if they feel that the path to get there is incredibly complex and nearly impossible to do on their own. And then the reward on the other side isn't really worth it, right? Like the opportunity cost is is material for for many people. And so I, I get why it doesn't happen. And our hope is a, an increasingly larger number of those folks do decide to make the leap or at least consider making the leap by coming and pitching the idea and, and letting us work on it with them. And I think I think this applies kind of all across the board. So, you know, the beginning of your career and, and at the end. Last thing I want to ask you guys is kind of a big picture question. Why is this a good time to start a biotech company? Well, because I think it is an absolute amazing time of ever-increasing understanding uh, of the biological basis of who we are and disease. And the opportunities are therefore, you know, huge to make a big difference in the quality of people's lives. And I think the fundamental demand is there. People want to have large, long, healthy lifespans. They want uh, to live the best life that they can. And so if we have more tools in terms of our understanding of the biology, more tools in terms of our ability, if you understand that biology to shape the drugs uh, across more modalities than we've had, And if you can do that now in a more efficient manner in all the ways we just talked about from a a founder experience, why wouldn't this be an amazing time to go do it? Yeah. Zach? I mean, I I just, I go back to something Alexa said, which is I I bet on human progress. Uh, And I think ultimately, in particular with technology, the amount of knowledge that we have about biology and and, and obviously in chemistry as well is just exploding. And when that knowledge explodes and the tools get better, the number of new ideas will continue to compound. And so it's always the best time. That's kind of how I view it. Like if you ever ask that question at the moment in time you're asking it, it's probably the best time to start a company in your space. 
And then if you ask it again in six months, it's probably now an even better time because we just get better and better at doing these things. And, and I watched this happen in software. I mean, I remember there was a famous blog post by Fred Wilson, who's probably one of the best tech investors in history. He's an early investor in, in Twitter and Coinbase and others. Basically, in 2009, wrote one of the most incorrect blog posts you could possibly write. And this is like a, you know, a legend who got, who got it wrong, basically saying that you know, the venture capital industry could only ever be so big because the outcomes of software companies were only ever so big if you added them all up. And then right after that, from 2009 until today, we had one of the biggest booms in tech we have ever, probably the biggest we've ever seen. Uh, I, maybe I'm getting some of the dates wrong, but but there's an it's an amazing post. And I just kind of look at that and go, yeah, I'm always going to bet on we will figure things out as we go uh, because the underlying knowledge and technology gets better. So, you know, you'll have up markets and down markets, but great businesses are built in both. And this is kind of a perfect time as it will be in six months. And I'll someone who's been well, go ahead, Alexis. I was gonna say I'll just add on a like a purely, you know, emotional note, right? Like uh, because it's fun, it's intellectually deeply challenging and rewarding. And there's nothing that feels better than when you actually are successful in creating a drug and then seeing that therapy make a difference in people's lives. And so, you know, there's lots of amazing careers and businesses and different fields that people can go do. But if you have the creative idea and you have, uh, you know, you think about giving it a go and sort of starting uh, a therapeutic company, a biotech company, I mean, look, it's pretty damn awesome. Uh, you know, as someone who's been writing about these startups for uh, quite a long time, uh, when I look at the uh, the maturation of all these discovery technologies, the enabling technologies, the growth of the number of people and their accumulated experience, all this accumulated know-how of how to do things. And uh, of course, there's money that's there. Uh, it, it seems, and of course, the needs for patients haven't gone away. It, it, it seems quite obvious to me that this is uh, an amazing time to be starting companies uh, in this world. And uh you know, I understand why people might get down over the stock market or their individual stock prices. You know, it's not been fun, but I mean, look at some of the things that the industry has done, the success stories, the, even COVID times. Uh, look at, forget about a lot of the noise around it, but the the sheer speed of learning, how quickly uh, ideas were translated into action. Uh, you know, it just says to me that there's just lots of good things ahead. I think that's right. Totally agree. Guys, thank you so much for joining me today on The Long Run. Luke, thank you. Always a pleasure. Thanks again, Luke. Appreciate it. Thanks for listening to The Long Run, a production of Timmerman Report. Pedro Rosado of Headstepper Media was the sound editor. Music is from D.A. Wallach. See you next episode. <laughs>